And I'll start with a question. What is it that we want out of life? To be happy, right? We think about happiness all the time. What makes us happy and what gets in the way of our happiness? Well, a really interesting finding from the field of psychology is that each person appears to have a set point for happiness. So this means that ultimately, happiness is easier for some people than others. And we see this firsthand in the people around us. We all know someone with a permanently optimistic disposition. For me, it's my friend Chantelle, who always stays positive no matter what struggles she's going through. And on the flip side are people who seem to always have a scowl of discontent, no matter how good things are in their lives. You know, the Scrooges and Eeyores of the world. And I'm not pointing this out to make a judgment about them. To the contrary, I share this to emphasize that our happiness level is not entirely within our control. We have a predetermined set point, which is influenced by a combination of factors, including the genes we inherited, the biochemistry we live with, and the circumstances into which we were born. This is why being rich or famous or even winning the lottery doesn't necessarily increase our experience of happiness for long. The author Robert A. Emmons talks about a famous adaptation study in his book, Thanks. In this study, psychologists researched the well-being and reported happiness of two very different groups. The first group had won the lottery, and the second had suffered debilitating spinal cord injuries. The conclusion was that the lottery winners weren't nearly as happy as would be expected, and in general, not much happier than another control group, and the people with spinal cord injuries were happier than would be expected. Within each group, there were individuals with a range of propensities for happiness before the life-changing event, the windfall, or the injury. What we're seeing here is that even with these pivotal events, on average, people returned to their natural happiness level, no matter how lucky or tragic their circumstances. This is surprising until we realize how our happiness set point works. We'll initially see an increase in our level of happiness after a pivotal life event, but eventually we adapt and return to the happiness level that is natural for us. So you might be wondering, what's the point of practicing gratitude if happiness is all predetermined? Well, it's not that simple. It's been shown that our happiness set point isn't quite so rigid. If we develop a habit of feeling grateful, our baseline for happiness can climb higher, even someone with a naturally gloomy disposition. The key is to create a deliberate, regular gratitude practice. We need to be constantly aware of how fortunate we are. And this is the goal of the exercises we'll be exploring in this masterclass. In a sense, there are cognitive hacks to force ourselves to focus on the incredible things in our lives that we often take for granted. And we'll get to that shortly, but first I'd like to talk about another barrier to gratitude, negativity bias. As a survival mechanism, the human brain has evolved a tendency to focus on negative information over positive information. So we do this thing where we naturally turn towards the negative. 
The psychologist Rick Hansen put it nicely when he wrote, the mind is like Velcro for negative experiences and Teflon for positive ones. And it's true, an act of kindness can easily be forgotten, but a memory of an argument can stick for a lifetime. And the same is true of painful memories like embarrassments, disappointments, and failures. These are the thoughts and emotions that stick in our minds. So if this bias makes us unhappy, why do we have it? Well, way back our ancestors evolved this bias to keep out of harm's way. They had to remember which animals were threats and which weren't, which mushrooms were poisonous and which were edible. Our bias towards negative information helped us evade threats and ultimately survive. But the thing is, we're not in danger the way we were hundreds of thousands of years ago. We're not fending off saber-toothed tigers on the morning commute to work. Yet we're stuck with this negative hardwiring. Luckily, we can take advantage of the plasticity of the brain to temper our negativity bias. And we can do this by deliberately cultivating positive emotions like gratitude. When we strengthen the habit of feeling grateful, we're rewiring our neural pathways to emphasize positive information and emotions. There's a classic adage in neuropsychology that goes, neurons that fire together, wire together. So the more we have a certain type of thought, the stronger that tendency grows in our brain. This is also the message of the parable, the tale of two wolves, which I've shared in past sessions. But if you're not familiar with it, here's how the story goes. An elderly man was teaching his grandson about life. He said to the boy, a fight is going on inside me. It's a terrible fight, and it's between two wolves. One is evil. He is anger, envy, regret, greed, self-pity, guilt, and ego. He continued, the other is good. He is peace, love, hope, humility, kindness, compassion, and gratitude. The same fight is going on inside you and inside every other person too. The grandson thought about it for a minute and then asked his grandfather, which wolf will win? The old man simply replied, the one you feed. So this is how negativity works. As we reinforce thoughts and emotions like envy, regret, and anger, they turn into habits. This is why complaining reinforces complaining and dissatisfaction leads to more dissatisfaction. So the challenge is to feed the right wolf, the positive one, and it's a fight because our negativity is hardwired. This struggle has actually been a big theme in my own story. Some people might have the impression that since I'm a meditation instructor, I must have this superhuman capacity for gratitude. But in fact, it's something I've struggled with for much of my life. So I thought it would be helpful to share a glimpse into my own path towards this practice. And I'll start with a scene. The year is 1982 and I'm 10 years old. My home life is dysfunctional at best. My father's communication style often involves plates or sometimes people being thrown across the room. I tiptoe around the house, never knowing what his mood might be or when I might have to dart out of harm's way. 
The only times I feel safe enough to relax and breathe are when my father is out of town on business. My teenage years involve punk rock, a purple mohawk, and lots of anger. I fill up diary after diary with passages of teenage angst. And then at age 17, after an explosive blowout, I finally gather the courage to leave. The next decade of my life is spent exploring meditation while living the life of a musician. Not the best career choice for someone who's been seeking safety and security her entire life. Nonetheless, I follow my passion. I live from paycheck to paycheck in rundown rentals with a revolving door of roommates. Fast forward to my 30s, where I'm still struggling. All around me, I see friends and relatives taking exotic vacations, starting families, putting down payments on houses, and seeing breakthroughs in their careers. All the while, my life continues going sideways, or maybe even backwards. After a string of failures and setbacks, I have none of the things I'd envisioned and dreamed of. Financial comfort, a home, a life partner, and children. Thankfully, my meditation practice offers me grounding through these challenging years. I actually make great progress, but I'm still held back by the flawed core beliefs I developed as a child, that life is a battle and it's me against the world. By this time, I've developed chronic pain and anxiety, which leads to a dependency on sleeping pills. My life feels joyless and I gradually withdraw from the world, losing friendships and opportunities. After years of fighting, all I can see is what I lack, what's wrong in my life, and I'm rarely able to feel an ounce of gratitude for anything. This is what happens when year after year our mind turns towards the negative. We lose the ability to see the good in life. Negativity becomes a hardwired habit. Of course, looking back today, I can see that there was in fact much to be grateful for during those years. But at the time, I just couldn't feel it. Certainly, I had real difficulties in my path, but we all have a story, you and I both, and millions of people have far worse stories than our own. At the end of the day, no matter how difficult our lives are, we have a choice. We can either view the world through a filter of negativity or one of appreciation. We can dwell on what's missing or we can focus on the profound gifts that surround us each day. And I feel it's important to clarify that I share this story not to be self-indulgent. The point here is that I want to acknowledge that this gratitude thing ain't easy for many of us. Eventually, thanks to my meditation practice, I gained awareness of my habit of negativity and the belief system that was enabling it and I realized it was time to do some serious work. I had to challenge my beliefs of scarcity and victim consciousness and choose to be grateful. Fortunately, one of my best friends had a very committed gratitude practice, so I leaned on him for support. In those early days and weeks of starting a practice, it was excruciatingly difficult. On most days, I simply could not find things to feel grateful for. But I understood that the more difficult gratitude felt, the more I needed it in my life. So at first, I just went through the motions using a gratitude exercise my friend suggested. I listed basic things I knew I should feel grateful for. 
my home and my eyesight, a fridge with some food, a closet with some clothes. And sometimes that's where we need to start, with whatever is right in front of us, even if the feeling of gratitude isn't quite there. And even though my words felt hollow, I continued to practice daily because I knew that change would take time. Every day I had to do the work. Every day I had to choose gratitude. And slowly, my words began to feel more meaningful. And the framework for how I viewed the world began to shift. You see, without changing anything in our circumstances, gratitude can cause a change within, a perspective shift that creates a radically different view of our life, like a black and white film that suddenly bursts into vibrant color. Over time, I began to develop this sense of wonder and gratitude for the smallest things, clean air and fresh food, the cuddle of a cat or the kindness of a stranger. I began to wake up to all these things I'd taken for granted. And as I became more grateful in my present, it changed how I saw my past. Looking back at my childhood, although I certainly recognized darkness, I began to also see flashes of bright light, like the art school I attended that offered the feeling of coming home, the music teacher who believed in me, the friends I laughed with and adventured with, my older sister who protected me and told me it wasn't my fault, the purple dress that made me feel beautiful. So there were many things to be grateful for. I just hadn't developed the habit of noticing them. And this really is the key, waking up and noticing. So now I'd like to share that exercise I mentioned, the one that became a cornerstone of my practice, and it's called Gratitude Countdown. This is a simple exercise that my good friend Chris Advinson came up with. Many of you know him as the author of some of Calm's sleep stories, including a story called Gratitude. So here's how Gratitude Countdown works. Whenever I get caught up in negativity or feel like tapping into gratitude, he'll start the game by calling out Gratitude Countdown, which challenges me to list 10 things I'm grateful for on the spot. He counts down from 10 to 1 as I list off things that I'm grateful for almost like a lightning round in a game show. After I go through my list, I call out Gratitude Countdown, and then it's his turn to recite a list. So I'll give you an example of how this sounds, and obviously I'll have to play both sides since Chris isn't here, but that's okay. This exercise can be done with a friend or solo. So here we go. Gratitude Countdown. 10, the comforting bowl of miso soup. I had for dinner. Nine, the fact that I live so close to a beautiful park where I can breathe fresh air and enjoy a daily dose of nature. Eight, that a local tailor was able to fix the zipper on my 25-year-old irreplaceable coat. Seven, the voicemail that I received this morning from my nephew and the love I feel when I hear his sweet little voice. And so it goes down from 10 to one. This exercise quickly became my favorite for a few reasons. The first is that saying the words out loud allowed me to completely focus on the feeling of gratitude 
to fully embody it. Something else I love is that you can do this practice anytime, anywhere. At the grocery store, when you're stuck in traffic, at the end of a long day. And last, the experience of sharing this list with someone, as well as hearing their list, makes for an even richer experience. I'm going to give you a chance to do your own gratitude countdown in a moment. But first, I want to share an important tip to make it most effective. Do your best to be specific. So rather than just listing my dog and my home, bring specificity to each acknowledgement. Share not only what you're grateful for, but how and why. So you might say, I'm grateful that my dog snuggled up to me this evening and made me feel loved. And I'm grateful for the view out my bedroom window of the sunset and treetops. You see the difference in how that feels. By being specific, we're recalling a distinct memory or setting an actual scene in our mind's eye, which naturally evokes an authentic feeling of gratitude. So now I'd like to invite you to do this on your own. Pause this program and take a moment to go through your own countdown from 10 to 1. If it's not convenient to pause right now, try it later when you have some free time. You can either say the list out loud or silently in your mind. And don't worry about being too profound. Just share whatever comes to mind. And you can begin whenever you're ready. So there you have it, the gratitude countdown. This practice works really well in a twosome, so you might want to invite a friend or a partner or a child to be your gratitude buddy. What you'll find is that sharing this experience strengthens not just your sense of gratitude, but also the relationship. Of course, you can totally do it on your own. I often start or end my day with a solo gratitude countdown. More than any other practice, I found this one has helped me create a habit of gratitude. But different practices work for different people, so it's helpful to try a few out, and I'll be sharing others shortly. One last note before we move on, and this is a side point, but I think it's worth mentioning. Someone once asked me, with all this talk of thanks, to whom am I expressing gratitude? To a higher power? What if I'm not religious? To be clear, you don't have to be religious or believe in God to practice gratitude. It can align with those things, certainly, but it doesn't depend on them. To practice appreciation, you don't have to believe in anything other than the life you live. If you got an anonymous gift from someone, would you feel grateful? You don't have to know who's responsible for the gifts in your life to be grateful for them. The point isn't who your gratefulness is directed to, it's that you acknowledge and experience appreciation. Now that cleared up, let's move on to a few more of the barriers that get in the way of feeling grateful.